Welcome to KSBC 88.7 FM. Today we celebrate Indigenous Peoples Day, a day in which we broadcast and amplify music, interviews, and media by Indigenous folks, along with content that brings awareness to the violence of settler colonialism and resistance movements in opposition. It's important to first acknowledge that we currently reside on occupied Tongva land here in Claremont, California. All right, Miyuyum, uh, everyone. Thank you for coming. Uh, welcome. Uh, my name is Angela Mooney Diarcy. I'm a Hashiman, and I first want to acknowledge that we're here in the ancestral homelands of the Tongva people. Earlier today, I was in our shared territory of Irvine, and I was super excited because somebody actually in the audience knew whose land we were on. That's a big thing in Orange County. Y'all are doing much better here. <laughs> but I was happy that at least the word is kind of getting out. Um, so um, I'm really grateful to two of my mentors and elders here, Joyce Stanfield Perry and Rebecca Robles, both from the Ahashman Nation. Just because this is an all, all Ahashman panel does not mean we're claiming this is our territory. We fully recognize we're in Tonga land, even though I jokingly said we should take a picture and hashtag in Ahashman land. Indian humor. Um, but anyway, so I'm going to give Rebecca and Joyce both an opportunity to um, speak from their unique perspectives representing tribal governments and grassroots organizations as traditional cultural practitioners in terms of what this landscape of indigenous sacred place protection looks like. Unfortunately, Tony Cordero, who's coastal band of the Chumash Nation and an attorney with the Department of Justice, she was ill and so she wasn't able to make it today. So I'm going to start by providing a bit of the legal context. Um, the students in my class are probably a bit overwhelmed by now. You've had a whole lot of different statutes and laws and technical advisory <laughs> papers to read, and so I'm going to try to you know, make that a little bit clearer. Um, and then I'll turn it over to Joyce and Rebecca to share their perspectives. And then you know, I think it's a small enough audience that we can have a good conversation about uh, sacred place protection. Um, so as a bit of the landscape, you have um, basically a, a few different layers of legal landscape in terms of sacred place protection. You have international law, which includes the UN Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples, Inter-American Courts, um, you know, uh, the Convention Against Genocide, all these kind of at the international level in terms of advocacy to protect religious freedom in sacred places. Um, in one sense, in the international realm, um, there are more possibilities, more avenues for protection, especially uh, for those of us who are from non-federally recognized nations. However, the flip side of that is because it is international law, it is typically non-binding, right? Um, nations do, you know, typically do not want to surrender any of their sovereignty or open themselves up to lawsuits. And so while on a theoretical or ideological perspective in the international realm, um, there's more avenues available to us to express our concerns and advocate for the protection of our sacred places um, when it comes down to actual capacity to protect our sites. Um, international law is often lacking because we as indigenous peoples don't have the capacity to move nation states um, to you know, do what we'd like them to do. Um, so that's one level. And then you have federal matrix of cultural resource and historic preservation laws. That, for us as non-federally recognized tribes, um, is also not an ideal scenario. So the United States, there are over 500 federally recognized nations in what's now known as the United States. 
But in addition to that, there are several hundred non-federally recognized nations. In California alone, at least a third of all the nations in what's now known as California are non-federally recognized nations. Um, and what that means in terms of federal law is that the federal government does not recognize uh, duty, uh, trust obligation, or um, a duty to consult with us as sovereign nations. Um, so while on the books legally they may not be mandated to consult with our nations, I'm hoping that both Rebecca and Joyce can speak to um, campaigns that they've been involved in where in fact we have been able to assert our sovereignty on the federal level. So even though we have what could be considered diminished rights in terms of federal protections, that doesn't mean that we have given up our sovereignty and it doesn't mean that we're not continuing to try to advance protection for our sites in the federal realm. And then the third level we'll talk about, um, which the students in my class have read most recently, is state law in California. And actually, um, it's the case, it happens to be the case that California state law offers better, more comprehensive protections for Native American sacred sites than are offered at the federal level. Um, one issue is that there's no cause of action in, under federal law to actually stop a project that would impact sacred sites. One of the sites that we'll talk about um, specifically today, um, Ponhe, the reason that Ponhe was able to be saved is because it's considered state land. And under Public Resource Code 50979, that actually authorizes the Attorney General at the request of the California Native American Heritage Commission to um, bring forward a lawsuit to protect Native American burials, sacred sites, sanctified cemeteries, places of cultural importance. And so that's just kind of a really, and then, you know, so those are sort of the cultural protection laws, but then you also have environmental protection laws at both the state and federal level that uh, Native nations can utilize to protect sacred places. And at the state level, those would be the California Environmental Quality Act um, that you know, is now amended by AB 52, which specifically requires consultation with all California Native American tribes, um, but also um, acknowledges that Native American tribes have specific expertise in terms of the ability to assess impacts to our sacred sites. At the federal level, you have the National Environmental Policy Act, um, which has is a similar public review comment type law. But again, at the state level, um, the state of California is very clear in law in terms of understanding that its obligations run to federally recognized and non-federally recognized nations. So that's just a brief background. I'll probably interject a little bit more, but I'm gonna turn it over to my left here, to Joyce, to say what she has to say. Mi Yuyam Ataham. Um, I too want to acknowledge that we are on Tongva territory and I want to thank them for having us. Can you guys hear me okay? Okay, great. So, um, my intent this evening is to cultivate awareness regarding the importance of place to our community and share my experiences while witnessing the ever changing um, homeland that we um, have to endure in the name of progress. So first, um, I want to introduce myself properly. My name is Joyce Stanfield Perry, and I am the daughter of Mary Louise Stanfield and Roland Elvin Sellers. I am a mother to Scott and Todd, a grandmother to Sophia, and a wife to Ron. 
I serve my community as an educator, a cultural resource director, tribal manager, and president of a nonprofit organization that I founded in 2000 called Payom Kawicham Kamalam. I know this may so sound like a very long introduction, but I'll explain it later. Uh, I am Hahashiman Luiseño Kumiai, Mexican, Spanish, Irish, English, and French-Canadian descent. My Hahashiman and Luiseño roots come from the villages of Chichape, Tobe, Sauchi, Alum, and Kwanasahavit. And today, I don't know if you guys are familiar with Orange County, but those places are known as San Juan Capistrano, Rancho Mission Viejo, Cleveland National Forest, and Oceanside. So all of this, um, so when a person travels to speak to other communities, he or she introduces herself by acknowledging their traditional teachers and family lineage. This designation clearly classifies the person and many times determines how he or she will be received. And trust me on this one, when you go into some native uh, territory and you tell them who your clan is, there's a computer that runs down like three generations on everything your clan has done to the other clans and why you, you, you are either a, a foe or a friend. So uh, one of the first things that you learn in your community is to acknowledge your traditional teachers. And so for 25 years, I worked with Chairman David Bellardis. He was the chief of our tribe, a mentor to all three of us. In, in December of 2014, he passed. So I'd like to pay homage to his vision, his perseverance, his determination, and his mental toughness. And I'd like to hope that through all three of us, his spirit lives on. So um, now I'll talk a little bit about my work. Uh, I started working with David in the early 1990s. I was a travel agent for the first 20 years of my adulthood and I was looking to make a change. And I was in a um, university setting and there was a lecturer that um, talked about the importance of giving back to your community. So I, th I thought, oh right, that, that might be something, what does that mean? And so um, I went to my grandmother and I asked my grandma, how, how do I get involved in, you know, in our native community? She directed me to David. David um, put me through the ringer, made me do all kinds of research, and, um, and then I guess decided that I was worthy <laughs> of his uh, mentorship. So the f my first experience in cultural resources had to do with um, accompanying David um, along a creek called Aliso Creek, which is a prominent creek in our traditional territory where a lot of our ancestors live. And um, they had unearthed a child and a mother. And I was a mother to a young, two young children at the time. And it just took my breath away. I cried, I, I dreamt, and you know, just spoke with David a lot about what I was feeling. and. He sternly told me that if I was going to do this work, I was going to have to learn on how to deal with the ancestors and where to put them in their proper place. I thought that was very callous. 
And, um, but I would later to learn, I would later to come to understand what that really meant. So that was my first experience. And from that point on, I was full of compassion and full of determination on how we were going to change the laws and save the world. In particular, our, our um, tribal territory, Orange County, Laguna Beach, um, Newport Beach. <laughs> so <clears throat> it was a big lesson for me. So the first thing Dave told me to do was, we have to change laws. And I'm like, what, are law what do you mean? What are the laws? So I had to learn about uh, the federal laws and the state laws and where that might apply. And during this time, it was in the early 90s, and uh, uh, cultural protection really s sort of started in the late 70s, early 80s. There were no protection up until this point. Uh, and we weren't allowed on any archaeological sites because we had nothing to offer or we weren't even related to these people. So we had to just fight our way through the whole process to prove to them that we had something to say about our ancestors and why we persist. So, um, so uh, I guess these laws kind of were, you know, part of the 60s and 70s, you know, when human rights was full blown. I don't know if you're aware of AIM, American Indian Movement. They were like on it and um, laws were enacted. And so in 1979, our tribe, under the leadership of Raymond and David Ballardis, um, started to assist archaeologists and landowners. <clears throat> and one of the first real big successes we had is Laguna Canyon. I don't know if you've ever been in our territory, but it's a beautiful canyon that takes you um, to the ocean. So that was a, a really big deal. So um, during this time, there were several laws that were really helpful for us, and we um, had to come up with some sort of cultural resource um, management uh, policies. We, we didn't really understand what that meant, really. What was cultural resources? To us, this is our homeland, and people that, you know, are destroying it are bad. So what, what's a cultural resource? So we had to learn the terminology of the academics. We had to find, you know, ways to work with them. And I think one of the reasons why we've been so successful um, was our patience and our ability to build working relationships. Many of them did not start out in any positive way. I can <coughs> attest to many shouting matches, fist fights. I mean, it was, it was intense. But nonetheless, um, the formation of a cultural resource monitoring program was necessary and um, to educate and promote the importance of sustainable and respectful stewardship. So today, the Hahashimen have to deal with desecration. We work real hard on preservation, and compromise are the realities that we have to deal with. <clears throat> so one of the um, topics that are real relevant to all three of us right now uh, is the northern por portion of our uh, territory, which is the village of Puvangna. Puvangna is a very unique site um, in the 
in the fact that it is very, it's well documented historically. There was a, a book written about our people, the first in um, California, um, first ethnographic data of any California Indian, and it, it was written by a priest, so you have to take under consideration his perspective, but nonetheless, um, it was, it's been real useful for us because it helped to, uh, uh, he wrote down our traditions and customs and, and ways of life, and Pavangna happened to be one of those villages in which he talked about. It's a, a place where our, um, a lawgiver and uh, a god all appeared and gave us, um, Let's see, how did I write this? He, uh, we Chinichinich were responsible for establishing the ceremonies, the rites and moral codes necessary for the guiding and um, preserving of our Hahashiman way of life. So when we died, the Kamalam, which are the first people, and the first people aren't people as we are today, they were energies. So energies had to change forms when this, when we passes and Chinichinich creates us as we know ourselves today. And so <clears throat> he recreated us into the current physical you know, forms that we are today. And uh, Pavangna is located um, on the campus of Cal State Long Beach. So a big fight occurred in 1993. Um, when the university fenced off and tore down the organic garden. They planned to develop a site into a parking lot and a mini mall, and the regents who governed the state university system denied the site's sanctity, demanding that the native people provide proof of our belief system. So I'm in my early 30s, or I don't know, 30-something at this point, and um, I never knew what a deposition was. And so I was asked to come to, to give a deposition in this really tall building that's called the Mission Building, which we thought was ironic. And um, they asked questions like, why does my, they wanted to see my birth certificate. And they asked, why does my birth certificate say I'm Caucasian and I claim to be native? They wanna know how I pray and why I pray. They wanna know when I pray and I have never felt so uh, violated. I, I had no idea what I was getting myself into, but nonetheless, I explained to them who and why I am what I am. And um, I was one of maybe 28 plaintiffs. It was a precedent-setting um, case and it, uh, the state of California joined us and sued another state of California agency, and we were able to prevail and keep them from building the strip mall. And um, so today we have 22 acres of land that Rebecca will talk about because she's primarily the steward of the area and works real diligently in making sure the site is in good condition and is um, respected by all. So I had hoped to have a PowerPoint, but I'm not real savvy. Uh, 
so you'll just have to bear with me here that there were um, there were we were brave determined activists and there was a lot on the line and there was four years of turmoil. We engaged in protests, walks, weekly meetings, depositions, and we selected several representatives to, you know, represent us through this whole process. And um, the warrior mentality was required for the strength that was necessary to endure this battle. So, and like I said, we were successful. And early fall, these brave warriors, me being one of them, and Rebecca's family being the others, and other Native people along with the people invited, uh, invited for a public gathering at, the Pavung, at Pavungna, which is called the Ancestor Walk. And Rebecca will talk about that. Her mother started that process. It's a modern day pilgrimage grounded in tradition ceremonies for healing, solstice, funeral rites, and people from uh, tribal nations around the world continue to gather at Pavungna and demonstrate the dynamic nature of ceremony and how it con continues to connect indigenous peoples from all over the world. So I'd hope to also have a slide show to show you my lovely family. Um, but literally I can spend hours talking to you about the effects of colonization on our community, and, but I wanna talk about how we're moving forward. So how do we secure a sustainable future for our descendants seven generations from now? And for me, the first step is validation and acknowledgments of the effects of colonization. And the second is forgiveness. That's a hard one. And the third is justice, not revenge. Meaningful consultation and the intent to facilitate uh, facilitize uh, a um, cooperative working relationship. I have to say that's why we've been as successful as we've been. And then fourth is to activate, which means educate and vote and vote and vote and your voices, especially you, the youth. I can't emphasize enough the importance of, of especially during these times to be as involved as you've ever been. So, um, Angela, is there anything you, else you wanted me to talk about before I close um, in regards to um, the laws and no, like? We'll, we'll get to it. Okay. Yeah. Okay, so in closing, my intent this evening was hopefully to provide you with some information and thoughts on deepening your understanding on ways the issues of environmental, racial, and social justice have affected our community. Ultimately, we don't need to play victim or be pitied. We are not tragic people. We are powerful, we're resilient, and we're an ever-evolving culture. We've governed ourselves for thousands of years and will continue to do so. And in the words of my teacher and dear friend Dave Ballardis, stick it out, learn from your elders. I gotta get a deep voice to say this. <laughs> be tough, it won't ever get easier, so be prepared to work long and hard to the end. I leave you honoring my family and my teachers and hope that um, you've learned something this evening from me and I look forward to any uh, questions you might have. So I thank you for your attention. Poeka, I'm finished. <laughs> uh, so my name is Rebecca Robles. Can you hear me? Okay. 
My name's Rebecca Robles, and I'm, I'm a Hashiman. My father's shocking, and I probably have a, uh, some Spanish thrown in also. Um, I'm a nurse. I'm actually a nurse. I've been a nurse for 40 years, and my, um, my mother and my father, somehow my mother always was um, trying to make the world a better place. She was a foster mother for, uh, she fostered more than, like 380 children in her home. And, the la and then she, um, I, should, I should go back a little bit. My, my mother's name is Lillian Robles and my father is Louis Robles. Um, my, my mother and my father both worked very, very hard. They were both born in Los Angeles. Um, my mother and father, during, my father was a World War II veteran and while he was gone, they lost a baby. And so my mother, in an accident, while he was gone to World War II. And so in his, my mother said she'd always stay home and take care of the children. So she stayed home till my brother went to high school. And then when she went, when my brother went to high school, she got a job as a school community worker. She was already 65, but she got a job in Long Beach and she became a school community worker. And then somehow she heard that in Long Beach that the sacred site was being desecrated, Povangna, and she devoted the last 15 years of her life to pres preservation of um, sacred sites, burial sites, culture sites, because she felt that if she had watched, you know, they were born, she was born in Los Angeles in 1916, and she had watched everything change. You know, she had watched all the open fields, she had watched the sites that she knew to be uh, sacred sites, burial grounds. She, she had watched everything change under her eyes. And she, um, she taught me, like I can remember um, being a baby, I can remember being three and four, and her carrying me and uh, saying, uh, you know, feel that wind? That's the voice of God. You know, that's, that's God talking to us. So she had, um, even though she lived in modern times, she was very, very connected to the land. And she felt that if we didn't continue to take care of the land and the sacred places, that we wouldn't continue to exist. And that the places were so valuable, so um, irreplaceable, that it became her life's work. That's what she um, spent the last 15 years of her life doing. And so when she passed away, I said, okay, I'll do one small thing. I'll start going to these meetings about the culture sites. And I'll work, to, um, I'll, I'll work to preserve the sites. And I became, um, like now, when you ask me what's the most important thing that I do, that is it. You know, like I was talking to Joyce on the way over here, and I said, uh, you know, I looked at, um, I looked at the way uh, we, our introductions, what we were written as, and I saw Tony, Tony Cordero's, and she was, you know, a lawyer for the state of California, and Joyce was the um, cultural resource, what is it, cultural director. director, and I said to Joyce, you know, I think I want to be called a culture bearer, okay? I'm, an, I'm the culture bearer, so that's my, I, I consider myself a culture bearer. You know, I consider that, um, I consider that like when we go back to these sites, when we go back to the places like Pavonga, where Kenichi Nietzsche gave us the way to live, you know, before we were human beings, where um, we learned what the rules were for how to live, 
that those places, they're like repositories for our culture. And if we lose them, you know, they're irreplaceable. When you go to those places, you can actually feel it. When we do our ceremonies there, you can feel the spirit of the land, you know. And so um, all of the people who come, there's all these layers of things that have happened over it, you know. Most of the sites have been uh, destroyed, built over, lost. You know, in the um, you know in the 1925 newspapers, it would be advertised. You know, skulls found here. Come dig them up. They would actually ask people. Places like Bolsa Chica on the coast of uh, at Seal Beach. You know, they would tell people. You know, come dig the, the dig these people up. And so a lot of things have happened. I um, whenever we uh, like talk to cities. We have a very, very curious relationship with the land because we lived here as free people. You know, like our um, our creation stories say that we were we were created here. You know, I know that a lot of scientists talk about the land bridge and us coming from Alaska and down and hunting and following the game and all that. What I think happened is that we have been here so long, we forgot all about that. That was so, so long ago. And now scientists are even saying that um, in San Diego some years ago, two or three years ago, they found mastodons. And the mastodons had etched, um, etched marks on the bones. And they dated those mastodons to 40,000 years ago. So I think that we have been here a very, very, very long time. And so we... Um, We've, we, if we did come from Alaska, we forgot about it a long, because it was maybe 40,000 years ago or so. And I have a really hard time with the linear, uh, linear sense of time. But we believe that we have been here forever, you know. And so um, these places are very, very important to us. They remind us of who we are. I like the word um, recreation because we have to go back and recreate ourselves at these sites. We have to go back and remember who we are, remember you know, our humanness, remember our stories, remember our songs. But what I was starting to tell you is we have a curious relationship with the land because we lived here, we, we say forever. And then the Spaniards came in 1769. Our first time we encountered, then that was the first time we encountered um, other people. Well, the, uh, our first, first time we encountered them was down at San Clemente and uh, it was the Portola expedition and uh, then the missions were established in I think 1775. So that's a very short chunk of time compared to 40,000 years or 10,000 10, years and then we became like and then the land became Mexico for it became Spain, it became Mexico, and it became the United States. And each time, all the rules changed. All the, the language changed, the rules changed, the culture changed, and it was on top of us, and we had to adjust. You know, we had to, um, we had to survive. And uh, in part of that, we established treaties. We established 18 treaties with the United States our treaties weren't ratified, and that's why we're a non-federally recognized tribe. And so most of these sites that are so important to us, 
that are the bones of our ancestors are, that our songs are, that are, are, are kept, that our history is, you know, we, we have limited access to them. And so we have a curious, curious relationship, but it, um, these relationships with the land kind of govern who we are, you know, our existence in the world, what's important to us, you know, what, um, how we live, you know, how we raise our children. So that being said, I think we're supposed to be talking about the law and the, you know, the sites that we've worked to, to save, Ancestor Walk. Um, so I'll talk to you about, like, we don't win very often. Everything, it, it feels like everything is stacked against us. But we don't um, give up. We don't give up because we have the work, like, we had the strong leaders and the, uh, the, the words of my mother, David Bilardis, and the other people who, who um, I think it's actually in our DNA to, um, to continue, but also to um, the resilience. I think that's a Native American uh, characteristic. Yeah. And then somewhere in the back of my head, I think, you know, because like I was telling you, 1769, that was like, that was, that's just a short time ago. You know, the world was different. We lived here for 10,000 years at least. And we survived, we, we thrived. We knew all the plants. We knew all the plants that were medicine. We knew all the plants that were food. We knew, um, were star people. Uh, we observed the stars. You know, we traveled to the Channel Islands. You know, we, uh, we knew which food to eat. So we knew how to survive. All the people who've come here since 1769, we're in a mess now, you know, we've got pollution, um, you know, global warming, all these problems, you know, like, so I personally think that indigenous people are um, the key to survival of all people. And that's, the reason I'm, you know, out here uh, talking, that's the reason I'm uh, working to preserve sacred sites. That's, and if you look all over the world, the indigenous people are the people who are stepping up and saying, you know, we have to change the way that we, that we do things. We have to realize that the earth is a living, viable thing. You know, we have to treat the earth like it's our mother. So that being said, I'll talk, let's talk about Pobongna, okay? So like Joyce was saying, Puvungna is, is our creation site and our sacred site. And in 1993, there was a large, um, uh, the university was working to uh, develop the site. And a coalition of people, like 28 people, um, we went, they went to the Native American heritage, my mother, my father, my brother, uh, Joyce, uh, David, David uh, David's two sons, and then a whole group of, and then other people. They went to the Native American Heritage Commission and they said, you know, they want to build on this site. You know, you have to help us. You have to stop, you know, help us stop it. They also went to the ACLU and the Center for Constitutional Law and they, um, they worked. My mother slept on the land, refused to, you know, leave. She <coughs> walked on the land and, um, and did vigils. Some of the community members chained themselves to the fence and you know, stopped the bulldozers from coming through there. And the, um, 
we prevailed. It was our, you know, one of our biggest wins. It's like one of the epic stories in our, uh, in the stories we tell about the preservation of sites. And um, it was sleeping all this time. Um, and the previous president, the last president that was there, his name was, um, was it Alexander? Last name Alexander? Yeah. yeah. His last name was Alexander, President Alexander. And he said, uh, we'll never develop as long as, as long as I'm here. Well, we got a new president about two years ago. And as we speak, um, there, you know, like, um, the, the university wants to build a large um, culture center, isn't it? And about two weeks ago, they began dumping dirt on the site. And it was, it's dirt from construction. It has uh, pieces of metal, PVC, uh, um, a, uh, little pieces of uh, material, and what do you call it? A manhole? A manhole, you know. And like when we preserved the site, when the lawsuit happened, it was, there was supposed to be no driving on the site, no, um, no driving of trucks, no driving of cars. They drove, they dumped about oh, three football fields full of dirt on the site. And so we're working as we, as we speak to stop it. Now, I don't know where I'm going with this, but... Um, it never ends. It never ends, and we're, we have to stay constantly... Um, we have to stay constantly vigilant. And then what I think has happened... Right now, people aren't ashamed to be outlandish. Right now, people aren't ashamed to be um, just blatantly mean or racist or... Um, I mean, in this, in this political climate is what I mean. And this is a, um, you know, like it, it is an injustice. It's, um, it is a, um, a freedom of religion, you know, a, an affront to freedom of our religion, you know, because we don't have a place to practice, you know, like if we don't have that site. And most of the places are, you know, like the, all of the Cal State Long Beach is part of Pavunga and the shopping centers around it, the, um, the school. This is like the last 22 undisturbed acres. And so we're working as we speak, you know, we, to get an injunction and to stop it and to, uh, there's some things that didn't happen. The EIR that was, what's happening is the university is building um, housing. And so they're taking the dirt from that housing where the housing is being built, and they're dumping it on Povungna site. There was no EI, the last EIR was done in 2008, and then uh, there was an amendment to the EIR that was done in July of 2019. Uh, our tribal group, the tribal groups were not consulted, um, and um, so we've, we've not had any chance to reply or to be consulted, which is against the law. And um, so, like I said, we're working to do to to stop. We're working to um, to we're, to get an injunction and, and stop the development there, and to hold the university accountable. You know, and have them do the consulting, redo the EIR, and not dump on the site. 
I wanted to talk to you about the Ancestor Walk also. The Ancestor Walk my mother started 22 years ago. We do it every October. They don't, she started it back then because at the time there was Columbus Day and she wanted it to be before Columbus Day. She wanted it and she wanted people, what she said is, here we've been here all these 10,000 years and people don't even know that we exist. People don't even know that we continue to live and exist, you know. And so she, um, she did it, she held it the first Saturday in October and we go to our different sites. We start down in San Clemente at the Panhe site and then we go up the coast. We have five or six different sites and we go to each site. We, um, we tell the story of what happened at the site. We offer prayers, we sing, we, um, we remember and then we get in our cars and we go to the next site. We've, um, we, many of the sites are sites that, um, where we've worked very hard to preserve. Do you want to talk about Puthidum? Yes. Okay. And I think Panhe too is well important. Okay. Yeah. Why don't you, uh, could you talk about Panhe, Angela? From yeah. the, okay. So, um, let me, uh, I'll just, let me just say, so I saw Angela at a, um, I saw Angela at a Native American Heritage Commission meeting, and I, I lived down in San Clemente at the time, and I knew that um, the, the toll road, the uh, Transportation Corridor Authority, they were working to put the uh, toll road right through Panhe. It would have gone within 15 feet of the, uh, where we've had a burial site and a culture site. And I saw Angela at a Native American Heritage Commission meeting up in Sacramento, in, at UCLA, and I just went up to her and I said, Angela, you have to help me. You have to help me stop this. Help me, you're my only hope. And so, we, I did, didn't I? <laughs> and so, uh, we formed uh, this group called United Coalition to Protect Panhe, and it was an indigenous-led group. Um, we, it was, all Ahashman people and you know our elders and our, our peers because at the time you know uh, surf rider everybody knew about how the um, how the surf would be affected the um, everybody knew about the endangered species there were 10 endangered species down in the in, you know where the road was supposed to go um, everybody knew all about that but no one knew that it was our sacred site it was like it had been written out of history or written out of uh, what was important so Angela and I got together and <laughs> created a big firestorm. <laughs> I'm good at that. Um, yeah, United Coalition to Protect Ponte, we formed, it was really um, quite painful actually, um, oh. seeing the erasure that was happening. Um, and I remember there was one newspaper article only that had even mentioned um, that it was a Native American site. And in that article, the reporter or the journalist only spoke to an archeologist, didn't talk to any of the Native people at all. And the archeologist said, oh, the tribes don't object. And I remember it was at Cal State Long Beach, actually, mm -hmm. Rebecca Joyce and I, we cornered that archeologist <laughs> and we cornered that journalist and we said, why did you do this? Like, we obviously object to this. And I, I remember, um, you guys have probably experienced this already because you've been doing the work for a long time, but for me, that was that was kind of the first thing I got involved in, and it was um, so jarring that these people just, they didn't care. They did not care that there were three people from that nation there saying unequivocally, 
we don't want this project to go through. We object, and we want you to issue a retraction. And the archaeologist said no, and the journalist said no, I'm not going to issue a retraction. And so for me, it was such a, a jarring moment to realize um, that the outside world saw our communities as so irrelevant and so powerless that they were had no qualms about just directly lying um, in the media. And so we had to do something to uplift our voices. And you know, there um, I speak quite openly about having a contentious relationship with environmentalists in Orange County. It's gotten a little bit better, but I mean, we formed United Coalition to Protect Pawnee and. It's 2008. 2008? No, so before then, maybe 2006. Yeah, probably 2006. Um, no, it was earlier than that because I was still in law school. Okay. So like 2004 uh, was when Rebecca and I yeah, first okay. met. Um, and, and, you know, from that point until I would say only in the past couple of years um, would I even say that there's even an amicable relationship with some of the environmental organizations in Orange County. Um, and the... I guess, for lack of a better term, the, the well-intended racism of environmentalists in Orange County, they, they literally could not conceive of indigenous people as existing or having any role or agency beyond showing up to sing a song or say a prayer at the opening of their meeting. Um, we would get so many calls saying, oh yeah, we've got this lawsuit and you know, we're gonna make an announcement about the lawsuit and can you come to a prayer? And we'd be like, wait, what lawsuit? I mean, you know, we've been here for 10,000 years. It's our sacred site. Probably if you guys are having a lawsuit to protect it, we might've wanted to find out about it before your press release. Um, so these kinds of things were always happening. And, and the irony of it is, you know, to bring it back to the law, that as sovereign nations, we have a status that's, that is higher than any local government officials, higher than the state of California. And so what these environmentalists weren't understanding is that it behooved them to work with us because when we demanded a meeting with state agencies or federal agencies, they have to respond to us as representatives of sovereign nations. That's very different than you know interacting with someone who runs a nonprofit organization. Um, but it took a lot of education, and I think still a lot of these entities really need to be educated. Um, and you know, myself and a couple of other folks just came back from Mauna Kea um, last week. I can't believe it's just been a week. But one of the things that I thought of a lot being there and reminded me of us starting United Coalition Protect Pongi. So our tribe, um, there's actually four Ahashiman tribes. And you know, as with many California tribes, there are splits um, and that you know, there's intergenerational trauma and it can lead to, 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 to discord. Um, and so one of the rules that we had when we established United Coalition to Protect Pongi is no politics, respect that it's a sacred site. And, and we kept that one rule, that everybody who's a Hashiman is welcome to our meetings, everyone is welcome to participate in organizing, but leave the politics aside. We're here to protect our sacred site, and we need to let the sacredness of the site um, really guide what the actions are gonna be. Um, and I was reminded of that a lot when we were at Mauna Kea, because there's protocol there. There's prayer four times a day, you know, and then they really, every time there's protocol, um, the Kapuna, the elders talk about how, you know, it's the mountain that's leading this fight. Um, Chris Peters with Seventh Generation Fund for Indigenous Peoples um, said in a report in the 90s that um, our sacred sites 
will be safe, will still be sacred even if every human being on the planet dies, right? And so the sacredness of these places, it's not dependent upon the human interaction with those places. And I think um, for me, especially someone you know who didn't grow up around my tribal community and who went to law school of all things and did debate in college and, and high school, you couldn't in some sense be farther away from our sort of community indigenous ways of, of learning and being. Um, so for me especially, really remembering that it, it is the power of these places um, and that that's natural law and that that actually supersedes any settler colonial law. Because um, for me at the end of the day, you know, there's only so far you can get in that colonial system and we have to do what we can there. But for me, the power is in understanding that um, it's these places that have power. And it's our job as the indigenous people from those lands to, um, to remind the rest of the world sometimes of that power. Um, but in terms of the, the legal landscape of Panhe, as I mentioned, um, Panhe is part of, it, it's a unique situation in that it's part of the Camp Pendleton Marine Base. And so it, it's heartbreaking sometimes, um, but I have to say that in a weird, you know, as, as Rebecca spoke to, this strange relationship with land and place, in a weird sense, you could almost say that I'm grateful that the military owns this land because that's the only reason that it's not developed. I mean, everything else that's not owned by Pendleton around there is developed. It's million dollar homes, it's destroyed sites, right? Um, and it's awful to me that it's a military base. I mean, there's still, you know, Joyce and Rebecca can both speak to this. Um, there's active training sites there, you know, and we've tried to talk to them and say, like, this is a, you know, abhorrent to our sacred sites. Um, but at least it being US military land means that real estate people can't come in and just buy it and take it and destroy it completely. Um, so when the San Onofre nuclear plant was built just south of Camp Pendleton, um, one of the th ways that environmental law works is when there's gonna be environmental damage caused by a project, um, the developer can propose mitigation measures. So one of the mitigation measures for the creation of the San Onofre nuclear plant was the creation of the San Onofre State Park, which is where Ponte is. And so that's what created the unique situation that I referenced earlier that triggered um, Public Resources Code 50979. That's the one place in state or federal law um, that allows for a cause of action. So cause of action in legal terms basically just means you can do something in through a legal mechanism to try to stop a project. Um, most federal laws like the National Historic Preservation Act, the um, Environmental Protection Act, Clean Water Act, um, there's not cause of actions uh, to, to stop a project, right? But so the state law, um, Public Resource Code 50979, allows in certain instances when a land is state land for the Native American Heritage Commission to petition the Attorney General to bring a lawsuit. And so because this was land that was set aside as a mitigation measure and turned into a state park, that's what actually allowed us to bring that lawsuit. Um, it would have been great if Tony could have been here. <clears throat> as I mentioned, Tony's um, coastal band Chumash Nation. So she's also from a non-federally recognized tribe. Um, but she's also an attorney, and she's an attorney with the California Department of Justice. And at the time, so she was the attorney um, of record for the Native American Heritage Commission's lawsuit to protect Ponte. And I also think that's one of the, the reasons that we were successful, because we actually had, as an attorney advocating on our behalf, 
someone who was from a community like ours, who could really understand um, what it, you know, what it meant, what the site meant. And so the, the kinds of translation that Joyce was talking about in terms of being dis deposed, we didn't have to jump through those kinds of hurdles when it came to Ponhae because we were working with someone who very intimately and directly understood what our experiences were. Um, but even then, it was still a battle, and we had to work and fight really hard to make sure that our voices were heard. Um, and I'll tell one story real quickly and then, then turn it over to Joyce, but the hearing, so this project, um, the Toll Road Transportation Corridor Agency, as Rebecca said, it would have bisected the state park. Another piece to remember in terms of environmental justice is that San Onofre State Park, out of all the state parks in California, is the most visited by people of color because in proximity, it's closest to the Inland Empire region. And so if they built a toll road, it not only would have destroyed a sacred site and um, devastated our, our um, cemetery, it also would have um, destroyed a state park that was one of the only spaces where there's coastal access that economically disenfranchised people of color were visiting regularly. Because the toll road that they wanted to put through, I think it was gonna be like a $9 toll each way. And so, you know, if you're talking, that doesn't even include gas prices or, you know, um, the permit fees when you camp or whatever, just for, to get there and back on this toll road would have been about an extra 20 bucks. And if you're a family and you don't have a lot of resources to begin with, um, then that's gonna make it outside of your scope to be able to visit. And so we were able to connect with different environmental justice orgs um, in terms of protecting Panhe as well. But it was, you know, in terms of the mainstream environmentalists, it remained um, really challenging because, you know, as I mentioned, their, their understanding of, of Native people was, you know, to fill a particular role at their behest and not really to look at us as peers. And um, so the issue was being fought um, in the Coastal Commission. The Coastal Commission is one of the most powerful um, land use bodies in the country. Uh, and it has jurisdiction over any development that's, that's gonna take place within the coastal zones in California. And so we were fighting this fight um, through the Coastal Commission. And this hearing was the largest hearing in Coastal Commission history. There were over 7,500 people that attended. It was um, at the... Um, Delmar, Delmar Fairgrounds, and it went on, I think, for uh, 15, hours. 15 hours. It was a 15-hour hearing. Um, and I, I'll never forget when we got there, what often happens is developers will often pay um, people who work in construction and as laborers to show up and say that they want a project because, well, jobs, right? That's always, like, the trigger. Um, and it's unfortunate because the people that are getting up and speaking about that are often not informed about the subject matter at all. I mean, they just know that they're getting paid to, to come up here and, and say this and that they need to work and they want jobs, right? And um, as, as you might expect in Southern California, most of those folks are people of color, are economically disenfranchised people of color. And so the optics of what you had at this largest Coastal Commission hearing in state history um, was you had a whole bunch of white environmentalists who were largely wealthy saying they didn't want this toll road to go through. And then you had a whole bunch of brown people who were laborers and didn't have a lot of money testifying that they you know, were in favor of this road. And um, so as you might expect, you know, racism, it's there and it rears its head in moments of contention. And I remember walking through and everybody's yelling and screaming 
And, and I remember hearing some of these white environmentalists yelling at the laborers and saying, go back to your own country. Like, you're not even documented. And I remember like, people from our community actually had relatives that were laborers. I mean, a lot of our communities are, are mixed, right? And so for us as Native people, I mean, we're not trying to ally with anybody who's levying like, racist epitaphs at people, right? Um, but we you know, are, are relatively powerless. And so we get in the hearing. And then also many of our elders came. And so we're talking about people in their 80s and 90s. And it's just a really um, emotionally violent space. You know, the environment, everybody's got their signs waving and screaming and 7,500 people in one space, right? It was really intense. And so I actually went up to one of the elders who was the laborers, and I was just like, hey, like, I know we're on opposite sides, but we look the same. Like, look at our elders over here. These could be your aunties and your grandmas. Like, can I just ask you guys, like, not to, not to add to the contention? And so it wasn't, even though technically we were on the same side as the environmentalists, it wasn't the environmentalists that were allying in solidarity with us. It was actually us reaching out to the laborers, and, and then they stopped testifying. Right? And so it was that moment of human relationships that allowed that shift to happen. But it still remained incredibly painful because that racism that these mainstream environmentalists were levying at these laborers was the same. It could have easily been directed at any of us. Um, but we ended up, um, it, it, it just worked out. So they did a lottery system in terms of public comments um, on this because with 7,500 people, not everybody is going to be heard. right? And it just happened that the very last comment, and the lottery system was random, and so the very last comment of before they cut off the entire hearing was actually Rebecca's brother, Louis, speaking. And the very last word said in that hearing was Louis saying the names of his ancestors and Rebecca's ancestors that are from, the, from whom they descend, Apanhe. And then that was the end of the hearing. And, and that's what I mean when I say that um, it is the sacred site itself that actually has the power. Because I, there's, you know, other people would call that a coincidence or random, but for me that was very much um, the power of our ancestors taking over that space. And um, when the Coastal Commissioners came back um, an hour or two later and made their announcement, um, two of the commissioners actually said that it was the impacts on the Ahashman Nation was the reason that they were voting against the toll road. And, and we actually won, and, and we were floored, and the environmentalists were floored, because nobody expected it. But the reason what shifted that meeting was the ancestor song that we sang and was the tribal voice, and then that's how we got the win there.